Shall we begin? You've probably heard someone say that when traveling, you need to slow down to see more. Well, on this episode, we might twist that around for a, a different perspective. Also on today's episode, we have our rider skill segment. And the topic for this one is turning your bike around without making it into a 40-point turn. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Shall we begin? Oh, shall Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. It's commonly said that you need to slow down to see more while traveling. Well, how about doing the opposite, speeding up so that you can see more? Well, that's just what happened with our next guest, Helen Lloyd. Helen's an engineer from the UK that fell deeply in love with travel. And in the beginning, her travels were on bicycles, and then she moved to motorcycles. And with that move onto motorcycles, she discovered that by moving faster, that actually meant she was slowing down. My name's Helen Lloyd and I'm from England and I'm an engineer when I'm not traveling. Helen, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. I like the way you said you're an engineer while you're not traveling. What do you spend more time doing, being an engineer or traveling? I'm traveling. <laughs> so really, you're not really an engineer then. You're a traveler who does some engineer work on the side. Exactly. It, it pays the way. How did you start out traveling? Um... That actually started when I was at school. The The school I went to offered a travel grant um, to 16-year-olds, and you could apply to do anything related to travel. 
and you put forward a proposal and if they um accepted your proposal then you got given some money to to fund the trip um and i applied to go trekking in the indian himalayas with a group and although i didn't get the the, the grant i raised enough money and my parents then helped contribute a bit to enable me to go and that set me off on this path of travel um that's that was for a month so the, the school was doing that what was what was the purpose of it what are they trying to show you um it was i think the the the, the grant was set up by um an elderly person who used to go to the school and left some money when they passed away um and now every year the, there's a there's you know it's offered to 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 that age group 16 year olds wow that's um, really neat because i mean that's that's yeah. really what would put you in the place you're at now i, I mean not that you exactly. got the grant because you clearly didn't but i mean it was just the idea of applying for the grant that gets you on the right track gets you researching something and realizing i want to do that yeah and uh, i never would have thought about it um if it hadn't have been for that um and and obviously when i when i once I'd gone and realized that there's so much in the world that I don't know about, um, just, you know, makes you really curious. And once you then, once you've done it once, you want to go and see what, what more there is out there. Incredible how a, a small thing like that can really change our path in life. And of course we have no idea where it's taking us. This little bit of travel you did there on the track that led to you getting into cycle touring. How'd you change from backpack to cycle? I'm saying bicycle. Um, well, I did quite a lot of backpacking when I was at um, university and in a gap year I took before and after um, and was on my last backpacking trip that I met some people who were cycle touring and it seemed like a really good way to to see the world. Um, but well, the problem with backpacking is you're constrained by public transport to some extent and you often end up going from town to town and missing the places in between but actually it's the rural areas and the remote wilderness that's actually um i'm more interested in in a way um and the cycling would let me do that what was the downside of cycling over backpacking uh it's hard work <laughs> <laughs> um to be honest i don't think there are any because even even if it's you need to cover some ground quickly you can put your bicycle on pretty much any kind of transport, buses, trains, planes, oh, that's true. everything yeah. really. Well, you got heavily into cycling because you rewrote two books on your cycle adventures. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, the first, the first big cycle touring trip I did was down to Cape Town from the UK, which took 20 months. 20 months. Uh, that's quite a while. And that you did that by yourself? Yes. Yes. I met, a, I met another cyclist in southern Morocco and we traveled together on and off for about five months of that time. But the rest of, the rest of it was by myself, yeah. And then what was the next one? You wrote a book about that, did you? Yes, Desert Snow. Um, the next one, so basically, basically this, uh, the backpacking I'd done in between in during holidays and then I quit work to to make the cycle trip to through through Africa and and that was the point at which really changed from traveling in my holidays from work to working to enable me to travel um, and so I went back home for the summer and worked and then I went over to um, North America and cycled from Canada down through the US and 
through um, Central America. And that was with the with the, the cyclist that I'd met in, in Morocco. Why travel? What's the fascination? Um, I love meeting people from different cultures and environments. And I'm just really curious about the world. Love learning about history and yeah, different places. Sort of an endless curiosity, I guess. Because a lot of people would look at that and think, wow, that's a lot of work to ride a bicycle <laughs> all that distance with all of your gear. It seems like a lot of work tied up in your travel. Um, well, it, 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 it enables me to see, to see places the, the way I want to. And, and to be honest, when I've, none of my trips have really been under any time constraint. And so I enjoy the physical exercise and it's not so hard because when you get tired, you stop, when you get hungry, you stop and eat, when you get tired, you sleep, you know, you can sleep. Um, and there's, because there's not this pressure to do a certain distance every day, it doesn't matter how far you go. It's, and, and obviously as you, as time goes along, you get fitter and fitter anyway. Um, so it's, it's really, it, once you, once you do it, you realize it's not that hard. It's actually a very simple lifestyle. And there's times when cycling is difficult, but for the most part, w once you get fit, it's not really a big deal. As a matter of fact, it, it can be quite enjoyable. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I re really love it. I really love it. So you're a cyclist first, then you changed over to a motorcycle. How did you do the change? What got you looking at that? Um, again, I met um, guys on motorbike, traveling on motorbikes and thought that was a would be an interesting way to travel Um some of the some of the downsides of cycling were sort of negated by being on a motorbike, and so at some point I got my bike license, and then it was several years before I actually got around to actually buying a motorbike. And it was when I came back from when I finished my cycle trip through Siberia. I um, when I was still actually in St. Petersburg just before I came home, I got onto eBay and found a motorbike that I wanted and, and bought it. So when I got when I got back to, back home, I went and collected it. And by that stage, I couldn't even remember how to ride a bike. It was so long since <laughs> I'd taken my test. Right. It's funny that you say buying a bike on eBay. It must be a UK thing. Or maybe people do it here and I don't know about it. But I, I don't know anyone who's bought a bike on eBay. But I've talked to several people, maybe quite a few people now that have bought, uh, like in the UK, that have bought from eBay and, and have great experiences with it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's much more common in the UK and, and in Europe as well. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not so different from like Craigslist, I think that you have in the U S right. anyway. Right. But you actually buy it without seeing it though. Uh, we, I don't Physically. know that everybody does, but yes, I, yes, I did. Um, because I, I know no, I knew nothing about motorbikes anyway. So going to see it, all I could say is, well, yes, it looks pretty. Um, <laughs> I, I kick, kick the tires a few times and, you know, pr pretend that I knew what I was doing, but the reality is I wouldn't have known at all. So yeah, I think we all do that with our first bike. We just hope that the, the buyer is honest and the bike is good. <laughs> <laughs> it's only after exactly. you get into it for a while, you understand what to, what to look for. But what you, you mentioned about, um, the, the bike is going to sort of do things for you, the bicycle wasn't doing what sort of things um well it gave me an opportunity to go off the route that i would would have been cycling for example taking detours which when you pedal power is just distances are too big to really contemplate um whereas the motorbike would allow you to take those detours um and then places which aren't so interesting for traveling through just where you just want to get from A to B, then you can cover the distance a lot faster. Um, and in terms of 
the places that you can go, the routes you can take, you can take a motorbike anywhere. You can take a bicycle, I would say. If you, if you want to, if you want to go more remote or off track, then really you need to go on foot. And so I figured that with a motorbike, I could, could ride anywhere that I would have cycled. But then when I get somewhere I want to explore more, I can then go hiking. Whereas with a bicycle, you, you, when you get to where you're going, you're pretty tired and all you want to do is rest and eat and drink. So. You had a really interesting blog entry. I think this is from one of your blogs. Um, and, and you have in here, when you're talking about going with a motorcycle, you're saying that, um, that basically you're, you would think that by traveling by bicycle, by going slower, you're going to see more. But you actually found by switching to the motorcycle, you're seeing more because you're riding a faster machine. Um, well, I, I suppose you see more places with the motorbike. Um, but you, you even said in here about um, you travel faster, you get to explore places that really interest you and then uh, slower and more in depth. And then you can, you can, I sort of got that you were going faster between those other places. Sort of what you said before this is that exactly. you, know, you cover those distances. Yeah, the, the bits that aren't so interesting or or I don't find so interesting, then I can pass through quickly and then really get to see the the areas that I'm that do interest me. I thought it was yeah, really so, interesting sure. because if you think about, um, I, I think often when we, t- when we talk about this sort of thing about experiencing places, we figure that if you're walking, you're going to probably see the most at a place. And if you cycle, maybe a little bit less. And if you motorcycle, probably considerably less. And, and a vehicle sort of goes on from there, removing you from the experience. But but what you point out here, and it really struck us when we were looking at this, that, that sort of um, flies in the face of, of conventional logic when you think of these sorts of things. It makes perfect sense. And, and you even mentioned to me when we were talking before about if you saw a sign that said five kilometers down the road, you could do that on the bike just to check it out for just for the sake of, well, let me have a look. But on the bicycle, you wouldn't do it. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. With the motorbike, especially in Africa, there's um, got to go to much more remote places than I would have done on the bicycle. Um, distances that you can, because you can cover the bigger distances if you want to, um, it means that things like water resupply, you know, carrying water and carrying food is less of a, less of a concern. Um, whereas for example, up in the Northwest of Namibia, um, I could have done it on a bicycle, but it would have been really, really tough and it would have been a major challenge. Whereas on the, on the motorbike, because I wasn't having, you know, I could, could carry 20 liters of water and plenty of fuel and food that, I could go and explore these areas that would, and it, and then it was really fun and enjoyable. Whereas with the bicycle, it just would have been hard work, almost to the point where I wouldn't have done it. But your motorcycle that you chose, what was that? The Yamaha XT two two five, the Cerro. Yeah, it's not, not a not a big bike, um, but a, a really good bike. You know, a, a sort of a revered bike by many people. Yeah, um, well, it's a it's a massive upgrade from a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, for sure. <laughs> uh no the i mean the reason i got it was because i because i'm not an experienced rider um so i wanted something basically that was lightweight that i could pick up when i drop it and something that i could i'm not very tall so something that i could put my feet down and just be comfortable on um and that would be fun to ride i didn't want some big bulky thing that i was always you know worrying about taking rough roads because because the bike was too much for me whereas the Cerro for me was ideal. There, there wasn't anywhere that I didn't think I don't know I can't go. Whereas we met quite a lot of met quite in Africa. We met quite a lot of people on the on sort of GS 1200s, which are great bikes, I'm sure. But 
they weren't taking them on the, a lot of the routes that we were going because they said, well, it's it's too big a bike. It We can't handle it, which kind of, for me, defeats the object of... With the XT225, you find there's no problem to, to load all your gear onto this? Oh, no. I mean, no, it's no problem. I mean, I just have a... I just had a, a 50 litre roll bag strapped to the back and then a, like a 40 litre day sack, which pretty much only had the, the tent in it and then any extra water or food that we might need on longer bits between check, you know, stop points. You started out riding with someone else? Um, through Africa. I thought with your motorcycle, I think you got it in, in uh, 2015? Um. Yes, that sounds right. <laughs> right, and then you yeah. set off for sort of a, a European ride to to get the feel of things. Yeah, exactly. I was traveling with my partner at the time. Um, with the the original plan was actually to ride through Europe and then ship the bike to Egypt and travel south. But we were having difficulty arranging or finding out about shipping the bikes from Europe to to Egypt and because I had a bit of work to do anyway, we decided to ride back through Europe to the UK and ship the bikes to Cape Town and do the route coming up north. Um, it, logistically, it made it made a lot of sense. Mechanically, w- with the motorcycle, as you're starting to get into riding, are you finding it sort of problematic compared to the bicycle? Bicycles are pretty simple. Bicycles are pretty simple. Uh, the motorbike, again, it's not, it's not that bad. I mean, I'm an engineer, I guess, by profession, although much, uh, very much an office-based one. But although I don't know anything about motorbikes, I'm not scared of picking up a manual and following instructions um, with have, if I have the right tools. And actually, when we were in Bulgaria, we got to Bulgaria and the engine seized on my bike. And with the manual and YouTube, um, we took it apart to find the problem and then fixed it and put it back together. So that was a real steep learning curve. Um, but it made me realize that it's really not that complicated. Well, for an engineer, it may not be. <laughs> I think for, for many people, it can be kind of complicated. But I, I guess, yeah, so you, you weren't worried about it. It's not something that it wasn't a concern for you, obviously, when you switched to a motorcycle. You just figured you figured out. Um, yeah, I'm very much. Well, I'll figure it out when I need to. Um and things like changing a tire and the general maintenance and upkeep of it of it is is nothing too complicated. I mean, to, to be to be fair, um, my partner Jimmy did did most of it um, because he enjoys that, and I I was much better at the planning and the internet stuff. Um, so we kind of split our time like that. But uh, yeah, I don't have any problem doing any of it really. Did you know about the adventure motorcycle scene at the time that you got the motorcycle? Um, yes, through, from the cycling, there's a few events in the UK. Um, I was aware of Horizons Unlimited and, um, like the Overlander magazine. There's a, you know, there's a few things. It's quite, it's quite a small community really. Did you go to, um, the UK hub meet? Yes, I went to, I went to one before the motorbike trip, um, after I'd cycled through Africa. And did that sort of change the way you looked at that? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, it, the thing that I found quite interesting is, I mean, everybody in the sort of overland travel community is very friendly and welcoming, but, um, with, with, from the, from the cycling point of view, I'd never really, I'd met other cyclists when I was traveling, but there wasn't so much of a community back in the UK. Um, I guess it's, um, much smaller than the, than the 
motorcycle and four by four community. Um, so it was quite nice actually meeting people who were doing the overland travel and meet up every year. And, and I've been back to these events most year, well, whenever I'm back in the UK. Um, and I've got quite a few friends now from those events and from people I've met when I'm traveling. And now we meet up when we, when we go to these events in the UK. Um, so yeah, it's really nice. So after you did your rundown in Europe, you sort of get the feel for the bike. You you headed to um, South Africa. That's correct. Yeah. But you'd been there before. Yes. Um, I'd been to South Africa a few times actually. Um, once on a hockey tour at university and then with work once. And then obviously when I cycled down to, to Cape town, um, but uh, South Africa is really fascinating country and very diverse. And I'd only seen a couple of areas of it. Um, so traveling, getting a chance to go and see more of it with the motorbike was, was really good. Another one of your blog entries was you used to write continuously when you were riding your bicycle, but you found, and you said it was a perfect distraction when you stop frequently to rest your tired legs, but riding the motorcycle doesn't need such recovery time. So you had trouble keeping up on your blog at that point. That's another thing that motorcycling changed for you. Yeah, very much so. Um, and I didn't write so much. I think it's also different when you're traveling with another person as well, um, because you spend more time with them talking with them and, and, and doing things. Whereas when you're by yourself, you have a lot of time to like fill essentially. Um, and, and writing is one of the things that I do enjoy. So that, that was one thing that sort of got put to the side a little bit on the, with the motorcycle. When you were, um, when you're riding in South Africa, you, um, I know you had, you had one story about where you went to check out a, a network of four by four trails and, and went off for the day. Can you tell us that story? Um, I guess that was in the, I'm just trying to think where that was. It was probably in the Bavion's Kloof. Um, I'm glad you which said is actually that. Quite a, Bavion's <clears throat> Kloof. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I maybe haven't said that right either. <laughs> if there's any South Africans listening, they'll probably uh, tell me off about it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it was quite early on in, in the trip. And so by that, at that stage, I hadn't really done much off-road riding, um, we hadn't got, had much of a chance to do a lot in when we were in Europe. Um, but a guy called Alex Jackson, who does tours in South Africa had mentioned that area. Um, and because we, there's a campsites in, in the sort of the, the, the region. And so we actually pitched our tents for a few days and it meant we could go off riding without all our luggage. Um, so that was really good fun. Uh, it was, it was kind of in at the deep end for me. What do you mean? For off-road riding, it was in at the deep end because um, I hadn't done much before. Um, but certainly after those few days, I felt fairly confident. And I mean, looking back now, we did much harder trails in in other areas later on. Um, but it gave me, a, yeah, it gave me the confidence to to do it anyway. You said Alex Jackson had had uh, sent you to these trails. Is it, it you, were you on a trip with Alex? We've had Alex on the show, actually. Um, were you on a okay. trip with him, or did you stay with him at one point? Uh, no, I um, I met I've met him at the hub events in the UK, Horizons Unlimited events in the UK, and we stayed in touch online. And I'd messaged him about because I knew he knows that area quite well. 
Um, so yeah, he, he was giving us some good advice on, uh, sort of off-road routes. You did on that little, that little section there, you had some vandalism, uh, with your tent. Yeah, that was the monkeys. Yeah. We went off for the day and when we came back, they'd, uh, sort of ransacked, ransacked it and, uh, smeared their crap all over the tent. So that was, uh, not very nice. That's pretty bizarre. Um, well, they're, they're quite problematic, I think, because locals have fed them and now they come looking for food in tents and they know what they know what they can usually find. Um, it's like an ongoing war, I think, at these at some of these campsites. And we, we had we had problems with them later on as well. They stole something from you? Um, they stole the our camping stove. Um, they ran off with it and discarded the various bits anyway we've managed to find it all eventually <laughs> they'd thrown one of it in the in the lake but we found it under the little jetty yeah so yeah all's well that ends well <laughs> why, why would they smear crap on your tent that doesn't make any sense well i mean i don't know maybe that's how monkeys think but i think it's like uh, sort of marking territory um sort of thing and i don't know whether it's uh sort of into monkey thing thing or whether they're like wanting to market as you know not it's not being ours i i don't know <laughs> we had uh, later on in botswana we went off walking on a walking safari for the morning and when we came back there was um the rip in our tent a couple of rips in the tent and then this little vervet monkey that we had actually seen and we both thought oh i really hope that monkey doesn't go and try and steal our stuff because we've had these problems in the past. And sure enough, when we came back, there was rips in the tent. And in the end, he'd actually managed to unzip the inner of the tent and go in. And he found this bag of flour that we bought to make bread. And he'd thrown this bag of flour all over the insides of the tent. Fortunately, I tidied up all my stuff and packed it away, ready to go anyway. But Jimmy's stuff was all laid out and now it was all covered in flour. And then the monkey shat all over the shat all over his stuff as well just to mark his territory oh, um and it that that was um you know it just happened to be jimmy's birthday that day so uh yeah it was a complete complete mess <laughs> so so is that funny or infuriating when you come back to that well i i just laughed but it wasn't my stuff that was covered in crap so <laughs> <laughs> so does it make you change the way you camp then i mean because while you're saying this i'm thinking well maybe you shouldn't leave your tent up or maybe you wouldn't the next time is, is that what you do or is it just a one-off i it didn't happen that many times there was there was one campsite where there was a lot of these monkeys and we we didn't leave our stuff unattended there but there was about 30 of these monkeys um waiting to ambush us so now outside of the um sort of the official campsites if you're just camping in the bush then usually it's not a problem so it's those paid campgrounds those arranged campgrounds that tend to attract them yeah because in the past people will have fed them yeah and then they come back for food yeah it's the same with all campgrounds isn't it i mean in north america we, we deal with in particular with bears here in canada because you get um, campgrounds that are just so heavily used and then people dropping bits of food but uh, other things even um, mice are the they're the biggest problem here um, at campgrounds especially as you get later in the summer and i think because they've been fed so well from these campsites yeah it's, ex it's exactly the same thing <laughs> you almost get hit by lightning too at one point um yeah in Lesotho. um it's actually, I think it's the country that has the most deaths by lightning strike or the most lightning strikes per uh, per area. Um, yeah, we were getting ready to leave one morning and it was it was raining a little bit, but not bad. And then uh, 
we sort of heard the thunder and we were wondering whether to hold off or not. And I, I was stood one side of Jimmy's bike and Jimmy was the other side. And uh, just as we were debating, the uh, yeah, flash of lightning struck the bike and, <laughs> um, yeah, scared us a lot. Well, anyway, we, we went inside and waited it out. That is bizarre. I've, I've never heard of a place be referred to as having the most lightning strikes. Did you find that out before or after this? Uh, no, after, um, and, and that was just, that was pretty much just the start of the, of the rains. Um, there'd been a massive drought in the region. And, and even when we were in the Drakensberg region of South Africa, which is sort of uh, runs alongside Lesotho, um, there was these fantastic lightning storms on a regular basis. And you, anyone you speak to knows someone that's been struck by lightning, um, to varying degrees so it's a it's a regular occurrence around there yeah How, why would you be why, why would people get struck by lightning more commonly there uh, just the frequency of it um uh. now we were camping up on the sort of the plateau in the Sutu one night and there was a there was another storm and i must say i was we were pretty scared unfortunately there was there was nowhere to go um but we were both well quite relieved to see the morning are, are there trees around or are you out in the open no it's all very open hmm. yeah which which would make more sense i mean lightning striking the the tallest thing which i guess would be you guys or the or the best conductor which would have been the motorcycle between the two of you the motorbike yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what the best advice is for when you're actually riding a motorbike um what, what you should do um Geez, I don't know. That's a, that's a question I haven't heard before. <laughs> I'll have to look that one up. What to do in a lightning storm when you're on a motorcycle? Or what is the, the safe, the best procedures, rather, best practices for that? I'm not sure you're on rubber tires, so I don't know if that's going to help you. I mean, it does with vehicles, with cars, but um, with a bike, you seem to be awfully close to the ground. Yeah, I I'm, I don't know. And I don't want to try it out. I'd rather somebody else tell me. Yeah, exactly. Read about it in a book. What, what was the route that you did um, roughly with the bike? Through Africa, yeah. Um, well, the very short story is from Cape Town up to Alexandria in Egypt. But we spent the first six months traveling through southern Africa, so across South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, and we made a loop through Angola for a month, and then we actually came back down into Mid Namibia and Botswana. So after six months, we were about fifteen hundred kilometers from where we'd started in Cape Town. Um, and I probably could have walked there in that time. Um, and, and then after that, we then started heading north up the east, up the east side through East, east Africa. And you went all the way up and then you didn't ship your bikes back. You rode the whole way home. We rode them to Alexandria and then shipped them from there to, um, Piraeus in Greece and then rode them as well back to Bulgaria, which is where my bike is currently. So through this trip, did you, um, is like, is motorcycling transportation for you or is it sort of a lifestyle for you now? I mean, are you hooked? I'm pretty hooked. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of niggled me this summer, not having a motorbike, um, to use and I'm looking, my next trip will be by motorbike. I sh I certainly shan't, certainly shan't be the only way I travel, um, forever, but yeah, there'll always be motorcycle trips. In my in my life what is it about it that do you find so fascinating that traveling by motorcycle i think it's the freedom um being able to go where you want when you want 
Um, and it's just really good fun. It's like the, the, um, Comparing it to compared to the cycling, the traveling by motorbike is just one big holiday. Um, like every every day was was great. <laughs> because you can just get on a ride. There's no there's no there's no real physical pain to it, I guess. And not only that, I mean, with the bicycle, and I'm not putting it down because I think cycling is amazing too. But you spend a lot more time in the, in the one area. So if you get on a boring stretch of road, you're on it for a long time on a bicycle. Yeah, exactly. What's changed with you as far as a traveler? Like, you know, obviously your mode of transportation's changed, but has it changed you as far as uh, being a traveler? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I possibly not. I think most of the, the I've changed. Certainly changed as a person since I started making these long journeys from the cycling. But I think that was because that was what I did first of all. Um, the the motorcycle travel is really it's really an extension of the cycling in a way i don't i, I travel in a very similar style i still travel very slowly um i mean a lot of people do a journey from cape town to cairo in three months and it took us 15 months and I still travel on a budget and sleep in my tent whenever i can and i like the wilderness so in in that and you know when i get to towns i like meeting people and whether it's on, we're on a bicycle or a motorbike, yeah, you can do all of those things. Well, you mentioned about when you come into town, you like to meet new people. What do you do? Like you're traveling very slow. So I'm curious as to what are you spending your time doing? Um, that's a very good question. <laughs> well, the, I mean, I, yeah, traveling slow, but I mean, certainly with the motorbike, we, 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 when we get somewhere, we would spend time in a place it gives you a chance to well go look at sites but also i mean i really enjoy walking and so we'd go hiking for several days at a time um and just store the bike somewhere and 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 go off walking and yeah so it the, the motorbike it gives you a chance to to do other things as well um like in the suit we went horse riding for a week as well um but hike, hiking is the the one that sort of comes up again and again. So you take a tour to, to go on a, for horseback riding? You take a tour for that? Yeah, we did. We hired a guide and horses um, and went on an organized trip. Um, I've done a horse riding trip in, in Asia before um, by myself. But sometimes it's easier to just go on an organized trip. I don't very often do that though. A lot of it you said is hiking. So you're, you're putting your backpack on, you're leaving the bike somewhere and you're heading off on a hike. Exactly. For Just days? take everything with us uh, up, up to a week. Usually, um, in Rwanda, we, we hiked for, it was a little bit more than a week, had planned on about two weeks. Um, and when we were in, um, traveling through Europe, we spent a couple of weeks walking through the Alps. So yeah, it, it depends on the place, what there is to see. What do you do for budget, especially, you know, traveling slowly costs more money um, just because you're out there longer. You're, you're not making money. How do you do your budget for the trips that you do? Um, I'm not very good at when it comes to budgeting. <laughs> I w work when I'm back in the UK and save up as much money as possible. And then I travel for more or less as long as I can on that on that money. Um, but cy cycling is very cheap. Um and I think the first cycle trip that I did was the only trip that I really had any vague budget. And that was, I figured I could 
travel for two years on about five thousand pounds and i i budgeted 10 or i saved up ten thousand to let me do things if i wanted to do them um i didn't see the point in going to these places and not being able to go and see something because it costs money and not having not having enough so and i think i probably spent nearer the upper limit of that budget um over the two years and so now i always sort of go on that sort of number in for traveling a motorcycle travel isn't hugely more expensive or it doesn't have to be what are you paying for that you're not paying for with a bicycle um well the main thing is the fees at the border for and it always depends on which country you're going through but um insurance road tax um that well and border officials see see a motorbike as being worth something and therefore if they can get some money out of you they mm. they might try um whereas the a bicycle you 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 look as poor as you <laughs> yeah you look a lot poorer and they don't think you've got anything worth taking so you're, it's easier to get through um but the other thing is um because you can travel further on a motorbike I tend to stay in accommodation or paid campsites more frequently than when I'm cycling because you can't get to actual towns to to have proper accommodation so I, I would end up when I'm cycling I'd end up camping in the bush a lot a lot more often because it's easier just to haul your bike in off the road yeah that too um and also if if you get to a maybe get to a village um it's I would I would go and ask if I could camp in the village and it would be fine whereas if I was on the motorbike I, I I don't really like bothering people and so if if it was only another 30 kilometers to town then I would do that on the motorbike and just go to town and find a guest house but with the bicycle 30 kilometers is too far to contemplate at the end of the day so so you, so you stop in the village where you are on camp. Do you have any tips for someone else who may be considering doing something similar to what you've done? Just do it. I think you've got the idea. Just, just do it. There's always hundreds of reasons not to. And, you know, I think you've just got to go to go for it. The hardest part is always getting out the door. Once you're on the road, it's life's very simple. It's funny you say that because I mean, it's something we hear so much, but is it tough to get out the door? Like even now at this point when you're so used to going? Uh, Every time. And, and even when I, even when I'm on a trip and if I stop somewhere for, for a few days, um, it's always hard to get going again, go out sort of into the unknown. Um, and it doesn't really, I don't think it gets any easier. I mean, on the, on the bicycle, I was terrible. Like so many times I've not really wanted to leave wherever I've been. Um, but thought, you know, I need to get going. Um, usually cause I'm still a bit tired and I would pack up my stuff and I'd walk out the door and I'd be like, Oh, you know what? I can't be bothered. And I'd turn around and check straight back into the guest house that I was staying in and, and stay another day or two days. So yeah, no, getting out the door is, is definitely the hardest part. Is that because you're, you're heading off into the unknown, like you're somewhere, once you get to recognize anything, you know, you're there for a couple of days, you feel a little safe. Yeah. And you kind of start to feel at home. You, you start to know, you know, what shops to go to and where to get your dinner and um, maybe meet a few people to chat to. And it's like a little taste of home. And it's it's quite nice to be settled sometimes. So to be always on the go is, is quite can be quite tiring. Right. You're going to throw that all away and you're right back to, to square one when you go into the next town. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any tips or, or methods that you use when you go into a new town to sort of get settled quickly? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, 
it depends where I am if I if I've got a accommodation in in mind already or not. But usually it's a case of um, yeah, get it getting settled and then going and finding a place to get a beer is actually usually my top priority. Do you consider Africa a place for novices? I'm talking travel. Um, I. I, there's different places. I mean, Africa is like a massive continent. Um, Southern Africa is actually very like sort of westernized in, in, in a way. Um, it's not so different from Europe in terms of what you can get and sort of um, facilities in terms of the quality of it. Um, it's all a lot cheaper, obviously. So, so Southern Africa is like if you're first time to Africa is is yeah, is is fine. Going to West Africa or Central Africa is is a bit harder, I think. What are you planning next? Well, I've got lots of ideas at the moment, but I'm thinking a biggest trip in India um, towards the end of next year. I'm debating whether to ride my bike over or to maybe just buy a bike when I'm there. This is a very vague plan that is only starting to form in the last week or so, so... How long have you been back? In the UK, I've been back since since April. I've been working this summer. And, and so just earning the, some more money. To, as I was going to say, so you're just saving your money ready for the next trip or, or getting ready for whatever your next trip is. Exactly. How do you do that? How do you get a job for such short periods of time? I mean, I, obviously you'd be more in demand because you're a professional, but do you find it difficult to get work when you come back? No, I've been really lucky the company that I worked for um I've worked for them well I I took a a year out before I went to university and got a job with them then and I've been back during the summers when I was at university and then I then I got a full a full-time permanent job with them after that um and it was so I've always been with the same company and I quit to go cycling through Africa um, but I've sort of stayed in touch and with and good good terms with them. And now when I am getting towards the end of a trip, I get in touch and see if there's some work available. And I've ended up in a very specialist area in a niche industry. So I'm reasonably confident of that there's work there for me. Because that's always a tough thing for everyone, isn't it? I mean, you know, a lot of people will end up having to quit their jobs to go on a big trip. And then the tough thing is when they come back is finding work and then also figuring out, are they going to go again? Is it going to be permanent work? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I am very lucky and I, I, I really do appreciate that. Um, but I, I think actually coming back from a big trip, I mean, yes, the financial like pressure to, to get a job is hard, but I think for a lot of people, like if you go out on a big trip for the first time, when you come back, your sort of views, I think, and outlook on life are often changed by the traveling. And I think actually for that, that can be really hard as well. In what way? Um, because when you're traveling, you have a lot of time, you have a lot of freedom. Um, you're not constrained by the same things that you are when you're back home working regular jobs kind of being drawn back into this sort of well rat race as it were um and it's a big it's a big upheaval in both directions to go from having a house or maybe a family um and a regular job to 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 a life on the road and moving you know regularly and then and that's one upheaval but then coming back 
to the life that you'd left. Um, it, it's they're so different. It's it's very difficult, and I think actually a lot of people don't consider that. Where do you see yourself five years down the road? <laughs> um, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm more or less doing the same kind of things. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's not like you're you're thinking you're just going to do this for a little while. This is this is your lifestyle. This is what you do. This is how you live. Yeah, I I, I think so. Traveling is always going to be a part of it, and yeah, I can't see that changing. It's been like this now for the last eight years, so it's just going to continue. I think. Do you find yourself having to explain that to people? Um, yes. Um, my parents, usually, (laughs) um, they would like it if I settled down at home and did the conventional thing, but I've sort of, it's, it's just, I know that's not going to happen. And I'm, I'm very happy with that. Um, and most of the people that now, most of my friends and people that I spend time with now kind of know who I am and understand and accept that that's the sort of lifestyle that I like. And in fact, so a lot of my friends now are doing similar things. Because they're encouraged by what you tell them. No, not so much because, you know, over the years, your friends change. I still have friends from university and, um, and when I've been work, when I've been working, um, and, and the, they're all very independent and live their own lifestyles the way they want to. I mean, what I'm doing isn't going to change the way they want to do stuff. Um, and they're still friends, but I now have a lot more friends from the sort of travel community that I've met over the, over the last few years while I've been traveling. Um, and so now I have, yeah, I spend more time with, with kind of like-minded people in a way. Helen, it was great to talk to you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Helen Lloyd, and you can find out more about Helen's travels at her website, www.helenstakeon.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. We're going to take just a short little break and thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you today. And the first one is Moto Bird Adventures. It's a company out of California that specializes in women motorcycle adventures. It's called Moto Bird Adventures, and it's run by a passionate rider named Carrie Doherty. Carrie built Moto Bird Adventures to be a motorcycle experience for women by women. And they have some incredible adventures planned for 2018, beginning in January. In January of 2018, Carrie has an eight-day paved road Baja tour where all types of motorcycles are welcome. Whatever you're riding is welcome to go. And as I'm sure you realize, while it's freezing cold in the north, it's probably the perfect time to ride Baja. And Carrie says you're going to be seeing baby gray whales very up close and personal on this trip, as well as experiencing incredible roads and landscapes of Baja. So drop by our website, www.motobirdadventures.com. And of course, make sure you mention to her that you heard about Motobird through Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.motobirdadventures.com. And she's got a lot more dates for 2018 than that. And the other one is IMS Products. 
makers of exceptional motorcycle products for over 40 years. And yes, they make fuel tanks, they make shift levers, and yes, the IMS logo is all over the off-road race scene, but they also make a full line of foot pegs for us adventure riders. Now, you should drop by their website and look at the ADV-1 and the ADV-2 pegs. These pegs are larger than most of the pegs you're going to find in the industry, but they've been tested out by some top riders and they absolutely love them. As a matter of fact, I remember IMS owner Scott Wright told me a story about meeting a rider at a show that literally laughed at the ADV peg because it was so big. He mocked it. He really made a big scene of it. Well, to make a long story short, Scott had him try the pegs. And basically what happened was he came back and ate crow. He, the, he thought the pegs were not only good, but he actually really loved them, like really loved the large platform. So it turns out he was an accomplished rider. He's now a huge advocate for IMS ADV pegs. So drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. Send them an email about your needs. Talk with them. And of course, anytime you're talking with them about your pegs or anything for that matter, make sure you throw in Adventure Rider Radio. Let them know you heard them here. Rider Skills is a segment we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to help improve our riding skills both on and off the road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to take the place of proper rider training, but they're here to give you tips and concepts to, that if you choose to do it, to, to practice them, they'll help improve your skill sets. So here we are again with another Rider Skills with Brett Tax. Brett, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, I am so happy to be back, Jim. The topic we're talking about today, I am just thrilled to address. It's something you see a lot when we're out for a ride somewhere. You'll come along a road, you've taken the wrong way, maybe the trail ends or something like that or whatever, and you've got to turn around. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about turn around. It's a big problem for a lot of riders. You see a rider stop and sort of look around almost confused and think, okay, how am I going to do this? Well, not only that, but I, you know I, I'm a lazy rider. I don't want to use any more effort than I, than I want to. And so anytime I put my feet down and I have to push a bike, that's just something I don't want to do. I'd rather be moving. And I'll tell you one more thing about this. When when I talk about making U-turns, so many riders just poo-poo it. You know, they just say, hey, this is just not a big deal. It's uh, I'll just stop and, and turn the bike around. And they look like Austin Powers as they turn their bike, you know, back and forth. And I don't think they recognize how important it really is to be able to make a U-turn under motion and how much more risk they're taking by not doing it under power and under motion. We have stability, don't we? With, with motion comes stability. The, the moment the bike starts to move, it becomes more stable than when it's standing still. So therefore, if we can keep it moving, we have a, a better chance of not running into a problem. And, and also that weight disappears. You know, when the bike's in motion and you see bike reviews all the time that says, gee, this bike is really heavy. But as soon as it starts moving, you don't notice any of the weight. So why not erase the weight and keep the bike in motion? So I wanted to offer my two favorite methods of making a U-turn. And as you know, when I do the, the expeditions and the training tours and the camps, I, I'm able to customize the techniques for the rider specifically because there's so many factors that go into this. You know, what kind of tires are they using? How much flexibility do they have? How much strength do they have? I mean, if I have a 100-pound girl or I have a 300-pound a guy that's all muscle, what they can do is is very different, so I customize it. But the two that I'm going to uh, offer you are, are my favorites and the ones that I think are the most practical and most universal. 
Okay, so you have them broken into high traction and low traction, which I'm, I really like. Talk about that. So the way I'm going to define high traction is any time that I assume that I can turn the front end under motion and I'm not really too concerned about the front end sliding out. So if I'm on asphalt, that's high traction. If I'm on hard packed gravel, uh, you know, these service roads, that's uh, that's a high traction to me. If I'm on a on dirt that's hard packed and dry, that's going to be high traction. If I have knobby tires in some gravel, that may be high traction. Low traction is of course, just the opposite of that, you know, that's the mud, that's the sand, that's the gravel, that's the off camber roads. That's my street tires on a grass field. Those are going to be low traction and they're very different techniques that I'm going to employ depending on what environment I'm going to ride into or make a U-turn in. How important is the setup for these? Because I, I think what you see a lot is, like I said, when I was explaining at the start there, but when, when some riders will try to turn around, it's like there's no planning put into the maneuver itself. It's like when you see somebody driving with a vehicle to a parking spot and you, and you can understand that clearly they don't have the, the skill to do it. They sort of pull in at the wrong angle and they're in the wrong position and it just messes up the whole turn. It's extremely important. And again, one of those oversights I think riders don't put enough thought into. And when we do our outrides at the camps, a lot of those those um, extra rides we do after the training is so that we can learn how to plan and read the terrain. So and you brought up a great point. I may be looking at a situation that would normally be considered a low traction situation. Maybe I'm going on a on a hill, I'm making a U-turn on a hill and it's kind of a little bit soft and, and, and muddy. And I'm like, oh, well, that's going to be low traction. But I might see a berm on the outside edge where I can run my tire into that edge. And I know that the tire can't slide because it's up against a berm and that changes it into a high traction. If I'm going to stop someplace or, or I have to make a, a, a U-turn, I'm going to try to go, okay, where's the off camber? Where am I going to end up turning? And this is a very significant planning process that may cause me to make the turn sooner than I might otherwise, or to continue past someplace just because I see a little bit wider spot in the road or a little flatter spot in the road. Should we talk about width uh, before you actually talk about making the turn again? Because how do you know what you can turn around in? Well, there's, there's two ways. I, I have a really neat drill I've, I did for some military guys. They trained for about seven years on these guys, and they were on street bikes. But we really wanted to go, how do we illustrate the value of leaning that motorcycle during the turn? You know, again, keeping this bike under motion. And it, what I did was I took the bike, and I held the bike straight up and down. And I put the handlebars full lock left as much as I could. And I kept the bike upright and I, I went all the way around. And, and so I had a starting point and I had the finish point. I dropped a cone right where that front tire was. I went back to that same spot, turned the handlebars full lock and leaned the motorcycle. And the average bike will end up being about five feet shorter by leaning over. So we saw we're between three feet to over six feet in difference on whether the bike was leaned over or whether it was straight up and down. So it, it does make a huge difference. Now, if you want to know what your maximum, what, you know, your motorcycle, because every bike has a slightly different capability, that's a great way to do it. Go into a parking spot where all the painted lines are. And there are anywhere narrow spots around eight feet, wide spots are around 12. So you can kind of pace them or measure them out to figure this out. But put your tire on one of those lines in a parking spot, full lock it, keep the bike straight up and down or have a friend help you do that. And then push the bike around without any lean whatsoever. And that'll tell you what your what your maximum U-turn capability is. And I, I say maximum because that's at full lock with the bike straight up and down. Of course, if you lean the bike, it's going to be smaller. And that's a great way to figure out what's my target. 
And it can be slightly different from bike to bike, depending on how far the, the bike will go to full lock as well as the wheelbase. Yeah, so wheelbase is one of the factors that plays into it. But the other factors are the tires that are on it. Narrower tires actually tight, uh, turn tighter than the wider tires because they have to lean over to get onto the narrower uh, radius of, of the tire itself. But it's also just the steering lock at the stem. And you'll notice that when you get off your adventure bike and you jump onto your street bike, street bikes often have less uh, wheel lock or less steering radius at the handlebars. So they will vary from, from bike to bike, but it's not necessarily, oh, it's a 1200, it needs more space. Uh, because that's not the case. You really have to look at the, each individual bike to, to determine what is that bike's capability. And, and again, that's where that, when I do the training, those are some of the factors I have to come into place. What is that bike capable? What is that rider? What are they on? And I can't just go, oh, it's a little bike, so it has to be a tighter U-turn. It's not always the case. Okay, so two methods for turning around. We're going to talk about high traction and low traction. Let's start with the high traction. That's good because that one is fun and it really impresses your friends if you can do this well. And it's the one that allows me to use that sidewall radius and I can get a tighter turn. Hey, wait a second. Are are we doing this to to look impressive or are we doing this to turn around? (laughs) Or is looking impressive the sign of a good turnaround? Well, you you know, one of the classes I teach I call poser skills. And the truth is every skill I teach is very, very practical and about developing skilled riders, but they're also the ones that just look really good when people are watching you. Right. So it, it, I personally, I think looking good a, is a, an important aspect of this. However, uh, it, when you can run at speed and you can do a high speed or a higher speed U-turn, these higher traction U-turns, you can make a tighter turn. Uh, because you can roll the bike onto the sidewall. So I'm going to use the momentum to help get the bike to turn around. I'm also going to use the fact that it's going to it's going to actually want to fall over, and that allows it to tighten up on its radius. So here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to approach the area and make a U-turn on, and, and what I recommend at the end of the talk here is, is a couple ways to do this for the listeners. But I'm going to approach the place, I'm going to make the U-turn, And I'm going to carry in higher momentum or higher speed than I'm going to want to make the U-turn. And what I want to do is be able to to break very late. And this allows me to carry momentum into the turn or or a little forward push. Just before I make the turn, I'm going to cut all the power. I'm going to pull the clutch completely in. And that takes away the gyroscopic stability of the flywheel. Because when that's spinning up, it's actually making the bike more resistant to turning. The other thing I'm doing is when I brake at the very last moment, I'm also taking the gyroscopic stability away from the tire, but not all of it. So those wheels are spinning front and back. They're keeping it stable. That allows the bike to turn quicker. Turn the handlebars full lock and I let the bike roll underneath me. That puts it onto the sidewall and tightens it up. Now, as I just mentioned, I took away all the stability. I took away the gyroscopes. I took away my momentum. I took away everything. So as soon as I turn those handlebars full lock and that bike starts to turn, that's also adding friction in on the tire and that's continuing to scrub speed. At some point, the bike's just going to fall over. So the way I keep it from doing that is as soon as the wheel is pointed in the direction I want to be going, if it's a full 180 degree U-turn, then that's back where I came from, of course. I'm going to add power back in very quick. I'm going to have the motor revved up some so I don't stall it. And I'm going to add power through the friction zone or through the clutch. And when I add that power, it's going to pull that bike straight back up, back into a stable position. That's how we keep the bike from actually falling over. Because once I cut all the power and cut all those stability factors, eventually it's going to fall. So that is our arresting process. 
if I get the timing wrong, you can actually fix it by adding that power just a little bit early, but not all the power. And so you're bringing that stability of the, the gyroscope back into the whole equation. It's a really neat technique to, to actually be doing. So you're not talking about spinning, you're not talking about locking up the rear wheel and, and skidding. You're talking about just basically doing a standard turnaround, but quickly. Yeah. And using, using, using uh, stopping the, the engine from spinning up so fast and to lose that gyroscopic effect and use that and your lack of momentum as a quick way to get yourself turned around. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about using the momentum so you can roll onto the sidewall, get the bike to full lock so it'll turn around in the shortest area you can. Now, using a rear wheel lockup to change direction or when that bike turns around, when you're really good at this, you can actually get the bike turned around and add power much faster to get the back end to break loose and spin and that'll pivot the back of the bike into a new, new direction. Like I said, when we when we do the lessons, when we do this as a class, we can go into all these other elements and, and facets that are not incorrect. They're just different ways to do it. But my favorite is just going in, cutting that power, letting it roll onto the sidewall, point it the new direction, add power, stand that bike back up. And it looks really good. Okay. And, and the other thing I was going to mention about either one of these turnarounds is that also one of the other advantages of knowing how to turn around, let's say a little bit quicker and a little bit smoother, is that you're not sitting on the road or the trail sideways blocking traffic or becoming a possible hazard while you're trying to get turned around. You know, you're on some muddy logging road and, and you're trying to get turned around. And if you're sitting there sideways, I mean, you're at real risk of having some truck come up onto you or, or any situation. I mean, I think you're, you can sort of let your imagination run wild with that. Well, and, and again, the, the subtleties of this is the amount of energy you're going to burn trying to manually turn this bike around in a limited space. Because, again, we get that Austin Powers thing going where we're back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And if you're in a making a U-turn in a limited space, it's a single lane wide road or even when they're two directional dirt roads, they're fairly narrow. And they're crowned in the middle. So everything runs off the side. So at some point you're trying to back these uphill and then you're pushing them up a hill and then you're backing them up a hill. And, and the more energy we burn, the more mistakes we make later down the road. And then our risk goes up and our likelihood of, of falling down, breaking the bikes, her injuring ourselves. And in the end, that's our goal. We want to enjoy adventure riding. We want to have a good time and we want to get home at the end of the day without being broken. That's the second reference you've made to Austin Powers. Now I have to ask, what are you talking about? Okay. <laughs> During the movie, Austin Powers, he, he pulls into a parking spot and it's got a couple inches on both sides. And he does like 50 back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to do this parallel parking. And, and I just, it's what I visualize in my head when I watch sometimes riders that do these U-turns on the roads and I'll stop and I sit there and I'm just giggling in my helmet because they're back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And and often I'll offer a, a suggestion to them or if they're open to it. And, and, and a lot of times they just go, well, I don't need to learn how to do that. I'm just comfortable. I just want to do it this way. And I, I think the, the riders that are very resistant to learning a new technique or doing this under motion are the ones that are fearful of it. They don't know the technique or they just don't recognize that there's a real value to this in conserving personal energy and reducing the risk of injury or, or damage to their bikes by, by tipping over, falling over. Because as soon as your feet hit the ground, you have a whole new element in place where now do you have traction for your feet? Or can you touch the ground on both sides? If, if you end up on a crest in the wrong spot, even if you're tall, you may not have any ground underneath you. 
you know, I know, I think I mentioned this last time we talked about um, being uncomfortable with something and something that I like to do, and, and you probably do the same thing, is that when you find something you're uncomfortable with, rather than shy away from something, you're better off to, well, go take a lesson or, or, or try and figure out how to do this thing better, more efficiently, so you're more comfortable. So when the time comes that you're sort of pressured to do this maneuver, you're comfortable with it rather than saying, oh, I hate this maneuver. And you want to be able to use it with total confidence. So it's we go out and challenge ourselves and do things outside of our skill sets so that they're in our skill sets when we need them. You know, we talked about, you know, how to rate ourselves as writers in, in a previous uh, show. And, you know, I talked about, hey, you know, if you get off and you're totally comfortable, you're always in the green and that's how you're rated. Well, none of us actually enjoy riding there. We want the challenge. We want to be in that transitional. We want to be – how many times have we come up to a – you or I come up to a, a hill or a ditch or a, a, and gone, gosh, I have no idea or, man, I'm way over my head. It doesn't stop us from doing it. It's fun. That's why we do this stuff. We like the challenge. But you don't want to be in a situation – where you really need the skill and you don't want to be challenged. You just want to be skillful. And that's why we do the challenging things. That's why people do the training with me so they can have those challenges in controlled environments so that when they need the skill, they're riding solo. That's not the time to take high risk. If you're traveling internationally, that's not the time to go out and go, gee, I wonder if I can make it. You want to just be able to go, yeah, I've got this. Yeah. And, and you also tend to panic too. You get to that spot and you think, well, I, I think I can do this. And then you panic rather than practicing it in a, in a controlled situation. And so you've got it down. And then like you say, when, when the pressure's on, you can do it. So moving on to our, our, our low traction one now, which I think is, is the most applicable. It's probably the most scary for everyone. I mean, the road turnaround, yes, a lot of people turn around and have trouble on asphalt, but I think for our listeners, a lot of it's going to be low traction and for good reason. Well, and, and it is. I mean, we have, I just was out riding yesterday and, you know, leaves are about a quarter to half an inch thick and they're half decomposed and they're wet and slimy. And, and these are on roads that are normally hard packed roads. And of course it's winter time up here. So everything's wet, everything's slimy. And, and those are the situations that can be the most um, intimidating and often the ones with the, the most limited space. You know, that's when we get off onto those side roads or those side trails. Let's take this really slowly, the low traction one. So do we start with the approach? Say I do exactly the same thing I do with the high, you know, the high traction is before I make a choice to make a turn, I need to scan the ground entirely. I need to know where am I going to make my turn and where am I going to come out of it and what's going to happen in the middle. The last thing you want to do is start a low traction turn, get halfway through and then realize there's a root that's uh, right where you're turning the tire that's all covered in moss and slime. And now when you hit that with the front tire, you know, it's going to cause you to, you know, to slide. The other thing is when we scan this, and we haven't addressed this yet on this particular talk, but when I make this turn, I can't be looking at the ground during the turn. I, I need to be looking back the direction I want to go so that I have better stability. When you're looking down, it's very difficult to tell that the bike is tipped past the point of no return because you've lost your horizontal reference. So I need to scan that ground before I go in, and that's all during the approach. Okay, so on the approach, when you're scanning the ground, what are you looking for? I'm looking for what's going to happen. I want to anticipate it. If halfway through the turn I see a really slimy piece of dirt, I need to know that when I get halfway through, I'm going to feel that front end slip on me, and I may have to come off a full lock momentarily to maintain that balance. I want to have some idea what's going to happen. And of course, I'm looking for the best traction. And if it's 
if it's really bad traction, I'm going to tr- at least try to find level ground. Because if it's slimy and you're in an off camber on a turn, it may not matter how good you are or how balanced you are. That front end may slide out and either carry you wide or the bike tips over and then we have a whole different skill set we have to employ, like picking up the bike. So, <laughs> so, so this is where you use your sort of accumulative knowledge. You look at it and you understand that if you see a rut, you understand roughly what that rut may do to you. Like you said, the, the slippery route or, or whatever, at least you have an idea of what's there and, and what to expect. Okay, so where do we go from here? So this one here, because I can't lean the bike over and get on the sidewall, I I really want to get comfortable having that bike at full lock. I mean, that's really where you're going to get your maximum, you know, turn radius uh, without the lean. I do end up doing the counterweighting stuff. We just still want to be on the outside, but the bike is far more vertical because we've already determined that if I lean the bike, the chance of that front end sliding out is much greater. I'm also going to be at the point where some of these U-turns may be at almost a near stop. As you make the turn through there, you may end up going for a part of the stop and almost stopping and balancing while the wheels are, are almost at lock or at full lock and then continuing forward. So this is where clutch control and power control come in. Now, on the high traction, I, re, I refer to cutting the power totally, rolling off the throttle, disengaging the clutch so that I, I took away all the centrifugal force whatsoever, all the, all the balancers in there. On the slow speed, we don't have the wheels. We only have the spin of the motor. Now, the interesting thing about a gyroscope is it doesn't care what position it's in. When it spins up, it becomes stable in that position. So as I'm moving this bike around, if it starts to feel unstable or tries to tip in where I don't want it to go or, or tip in, if I rev the motor, even with the clutch in, the bike momentarily pauses in its motion. That allows me to shift my body to correct that. The other benefit of having this, this over-rev, whether it's you're holding the over-rev or whether you're blipping into an over-rev is as I run the clutch into the friction zone and massage that friction zone for forward momentum, I run less risk of stalling the bike. And now when you're talking over-rev, I know you're not saying over-revving the engine. You're talking about revving higher than what you would have to do in that situation for the motion that you're getting from it. Correct. So it, it, I'm not talking five. Uh, yeah, we're not talking going, okay, it's 12,000 RPM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're not talking over revving over the red line of the bike. What I'm talking about is over rev is if you were riding at any given speed and the bike is fully engaged and you're in that gear, that's the revs needed to go at that speed. We, we over rev every time we pull away from an intersection. We increase the RPMs above the speed we're going. So as we ease the clutch out, as we move into that, get our motion underway, we don't stall the bike. And, you know, otherwise you have to be much, much slower about easing the clutch out. Or in some cases, bikes will actually stall if you don't add any throttle whatsoever. So when I'm talking about over rev, I'm talking about increasing the RPMs above the speed that you're going. Uh, And the blipping may be much higher. I mean, you may be going from 1,000 RPM at idle up to maybe even as much as 2,000 RPM, but we're not talking 6,000, 8,000 RPM. So the, the key point here, a few of the key points, one of them you mentioned locking the steering, and, and you've talked about this many times. Um, how does locking the steering stabilize the bike or help stabilize so it? The key to locking the, the steering is you can only get maximum turn if the handlebars are fully locked. You'll see this with drill teams or with the police drill teams. If you watch them, they all go full lock, which just means the handlebar cannot turn any further. 
when you're doing a turn like this, the idea is you go full lock. Uh, as we know, the, the wheel generally they move left and right to maintain stability. And as you're making this turn, if you never take it back off of full lock, if you just lock the handlebars and never do anything about it, it it's it's far more challenging or, or it requires far more skill to be moving your body outside and inside to maintain that. And of course, in a loose traction situation, if you get a slip, you may have to come off of full lock to steer back underneath your balance point and then go back to full lock to get your steering radius back. So you're not going to be able, most situations, especially in a low traction, you're not going to be able to put on full lock and keep it there. But you want to keep it there as much as you can. You're going to be bouncing off. That's your, that's your index point so that you can make the smallest U-turn possible, which is, of course, our objective. So what's the big difference between the low traction and the high traction turn? Is it just the, the speed at which you come up to it? The speed and the technique. The high speed requires you, it, it's actually beneficial in the fact that we get a tighter radius. So you really, it's not as critical to go full lock to the handlebar. You have more flexibility. You're removing all the power for forward uh, motion and you're actually just using the momentum of your approach to carry you completely through the turn and you're going to expect the bike to feel like it wants to fall over by the time you get to your end of your turn. And you're going to use power, adding that power to stand the bike back up. So when we do a low speed, we're not going to disengage power. We're going to keep right at the low edge of keeping forward momentum. We're not going to have any momentum coming in. So it's going to be all about us keeping the bike vertical and balancing the bike ourselves. We don't have a momentum to keep the balance. And we have to manage that power all the way through that turn. So very different techniques depending on on what you want to employ and how you do that. And like I said, when we were talking before the, the show, we were just discussing just a tad, and I had mentioned to you that two different riders may use two different techniques on the exact same U-turn location. And that could be one has street tires and one has knobbies. And that'll change which technique you can use. One may have much more confidence in leaning the bike over, one may have less confidence in that. That's going to change that technique. Uh, you may have better skill sets on one or the other. So environment's partly how we choose what we do. The other one is the other facets or the other considerations that come into play. I'm just thinking of the different skills that you're going to use here. But what I want to ask about first, because you, you said two different things there. One, you said keeping the bike vertical because we're, we're on slippery surface. And the other, you said about counterweighting. So how much counterweighting or how much leaning do we do or do we not lean it at all when it comes to low traction situations? On low traction situations, your counterweight's going to be very minimal because we've already determined as a rider that we think that the front end is likely to slip out from underneath us if we lean the bike at all. And if you just imagine, you know, turning on an off camber road covered in mud, most of us go, Ooh, that's not good. Right. We're, we're all going to agree. That's probably a situation where that front end is going to slip out. Yeah. So we're trying to keep the bike straight up and down, but because we have no gyroscopic balance of the bike, no flywheel and no speed, no, no momentum in the wheels to keep that bike balanced. We're the only thing keeping that bike from tipping over. And, and the bike has that neutral balance point, you know, where it stands up on its own. But as you turn, that shifts just slightly. So your counterweight, although it won't be large because the bike's not leaning much, you'll still be shifting your weight just enough to keep that bike at that neutral balance. And that's, we went all the way, this takes us all the way back to moving the bike without power and keeping that bike straight up and down and, and all these other skill sets we've, we've approached. It's amazing how this stuff builds up on each other. 
but that's really the the idea there is you're just trying to maintain just enough control so the bike doesn't tip over. And you also mentioned putting it at a full lock when we're turning around to get our tightest turn. Does that help stabilize the motorcycle when you actually have it on the stop on the lock? It can, but it's limited. And because the the wheels go back and forth, you know, they have a little serpentine action when they're going down the the road. And and of course, you have the gyroscopic precession of the tires spinning that helps keep it balanced. So all of that is gone. So when you do the full lock, it can provide some balance, but that generally means you have just a little bit of push behind that front end. So that's where that gray zone, that little bit of power going forward helps keep you balanced. When the the police do these type of drills, they'll trail the rear brake to try to to use the torque of the rear brake to pull the bike back and do it upright so it doesn't fall over. But the reason we're doing the full lock, Jim, is that's the way we get our maximum turn. You know, anytime you come off a block, you've just increased the radius of your U-turn. And because we've decided we're not leaning the bike over, we've already created a scenario where we're making a larger radius U-turn than in the high traction situation where we can roll over onto the sidewall. You also mentioned the gyroscopic effect of the engine, not the wheels in this case because we're moving very slowly, but the gyroscopic effect of the engine spinning up. Will all bikes feel that the same? Like I know there's a big difference between something like, let's say, a KLR 650 and maybe a Tiger 800 as far as engine design goes. The, the, there will be a difference in the size of the flywheel. The larger the flywheel, the greater the effect. I think most people would understand that. The other that you're going to feel is, you know, the twins for, for example, if you have an old 1200 GS, they're set longitudinal. So when they spin up, you'll actually feel the bike pull to the right, uh, where most of the bikes, the gyroscope spins forward. So any of the four cylinders or any of your, your twins, they generally spin forward. But it really just has to do with the size of the flywheel. So the bigger twins uh, usually have a better effect than maybe a triple or four-cylinder. But as a rider, you're just going to learn how your bike has effect. How much spin do you need to add into that to get that effect? Or or how little do you need? And that's going to come back down to individual ability and the bike and all those factors that we have to work in to customize a U-turn process for any specific rider. Now we're doing this turn. Are we sitting or standing? We can do it either way. Because uh, for off-road, I I do like standing. As you know, we get more movement and uh, greater effect, and the bike itself is lighter underneath it. But you can do this either way, standing or sitting. And in fact, I think for most riders, when they learn, when they're first learning this process, they'll feel far more comfortable in a sitting position. And there's so many times, probably, you know, if I'm actually on a, a road in a ride, I would say the majority of the time I'm sitting or in a near sitting position. Okay. And what about wheel spin? We're trying to do this without any wheel spin or do we want to goose the back end at times? You can actually slide the back end on either method, whether it's a low speed or a high speed. You can use wheel spin at the end of the U-turn to to help steer the bike just a little bit more. You'll see this with... Uh, with motocross bikes, most most examples, they'll come in and either slide the back end to get it pivoted in a direction and then spin it more with power to pivot the bike almost uh, almost immediate. You know, the front end has almost no turn whatsoever. It's almost like they pivot around the front end. Uh, on the big adventure bikes, we're not going to probably be that exaggerated, but it does give an illustration of how that can work. 
So yeah, as you come around towards the end of the stop, if you're very confident and you're very good about keeping over the top, and I usually do this in a standing position, not a sitting, then yeah, I can add power to the back, slide the back end around to tighten it up and, and ride out from there. And you really got to be on the clutch at that point, don't you? Because that's your bailout. You've always got to have the clutch and you've got to be very good about knowing when the power engages and how much power you're going to get. And this includes the high traction situations because it's using that clutch that pulls you out of the fall. Because essentially when you do this, you're letting the bike fall into the turn using the power to stand it back up. On the low speed, you need it because you're keeping it under power the whole time. And if you're very jerky and you're and it's getting spurts of power, then you you're going to break traction at the back or you're possibly going to push the front out from underneath the bike. And then, of course, now we're back to picking up the bikes. Okay, so let's talk about the exercise that you have for the listener. This one is fun because it's so easy for people to do. You don't need dirt. I, I do like to take away as much risk as possible when developing a new skill. So what I'm going to recommend is go to a parking spot. All you need is four parking spaces. You're going to go two parking spaces wide and two parking spaces deep. And this is, your, this is going to be your drill practice. The first thing you'll do is you're going to go up and set your tire right next to uh, the, the white line, either on the right side or the left side, depending on what U-turn you want to do. And I want people to do that full lock test. I want them to do a full lock on the bike and then turn the bike around so they know exactly. And they can use a chalk mark or something on the ground. So they know that's the, the smallest U-turn they can make it a full lock and that every U-turn should be that small or smaller if they've perfected either of these techniques. That way they have a target. Then what they can do is go back out. They line up on that white line and they approach it and they do either the high traction or the low traction technique. Now, the reason I recommend doing low traction practice in this high traction situation is that if for whatever reason, either technique doesn't work out for you, you have a whole parking lot to go into. So don't let the bike fall down. Just stand it up, straighten it up and ride off. Even it's right through the side of your practice area. We don't want people to hurt themselves tipping over. We don't want them to get pinned under their bikes and we don't want them to damage their bikes. And this allows that situation. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back and we're going to practice the high speed. Come into it with a fairly high speed. Uh, and again, this is relative high speed, maybe 10 miles per hour, by the way, 10 or 15. Just before they're ready to make the turn, pull in the clutch and apply some front brake to load up on the front end. That also shortens the chassis by compressing the front end. They turn the handlebars, the power is still disengaged, the bike makes the full U-turn, they stand the bike back up by adding power. And again, because we're in a parking lot, which is the highest traction we're going to be able to find, if they're not as smooth about getting the power out, the bike's still going to react and stand up. In the dirt, they may need to be more accurate. For the low speed, we're going to try to go as slow as absolutely possible. We're going to assume the worst case low traction situation we can ever be in. But because we're in high traction, we can be sloppy without the penalties. So you come up next to that white line, again, making a left or uh, right, trying to stay inside your two parking spot width. And you're going to come to a near stop and you're going to do everything you can to, to get that over to lock. You know, I want you to feel it, just touch that, that steering lock and just use that clutch and power it just as slow as you possibly can, even at the point where you can stop right in the middle of your U-turn and then start up again. And that's what they're working towards. Because if you have that much control in a high traction situation, that means that that skill is polished 
for the low traction. And having these parking spaces means anytime you go out, you can just swing into a parking place or into a store or a mall and just go in, make some U-turns, and then you know head on out. And you can continue to polish the skill, either doing the low speed or the high speed. When the riders think they have it mastered, then what you want to do is, I mentioned that we're too wide and too deep. You want to try to work towards doing figure eights. If you can do a, go in on one side, make a figure eight to the left, cross all the way over to the line, a figure eight to the right, and then just do as many figure eights as you can so you're practicing left and right. And this really pushes the skill set of allowing the bike to transition underneath you. So you just let it move left and right very quickly while you're staying neutral above the bike. And if we're practicing low traction, we're going to keep the bike fairly vertical. We're trying to keep it as vertical as possible and going as slow as possible. Uh, Again, the goal is let's get rid of the risk of hurting ourselves while we're trying to learn a new skill. And this is the best way to do that. So when we get out there in that really soft and slimy stuff, you, you have the skill sets. And of course, the next level is if you can do it in you know, in a parking lot where you have dry pavement, can you do it in a parking lot with wet pavement? Can you do it in a field with grass? Can you do it in a dirt parking lot that has runoff? And so you can continue to work this drill. And if you don't have the lines, you can just drop a, a water bottle or uh, or something and then just may try to make turns around that as tight as you can. And so you can do that drill as well, even without lines. When you teach the low speed turnaround, do you talk about using the front brake? Because if, if, you're, if you're too heavy on the front brake, it can actually put you into an unstable situation. So when I'm teaching in the, in the school, the technique that I start off with is the one that we offered here. These are my favorites and they're the easiest ones for people to pick up. When you start adding in front brake and rear brake, these are fine tuning skill sets that you add back in. The front brake can be a very, very useful tool for tightening up a U-turn. And the reason is if the bike is turned and you're at full lock and you touch the front brake, it will immediately try to throw itself on the ground. Now that sounds bad, (laughs) but that means that it's falling in the direction I want to go. I need to have just enough brake to get the fall that I want and immediately be able to follow it up with enough power delivery to stand the bike back up. So it will allow us to get much tighter turns but it's much more critical to be timed well behind the braking and with the power return or the the clutch work on the opposite side. Okay, so that's two great turnarounds. You mentioned to me before, there's other ways to turn around. There are so many different facets, but these are these are the best ones to to practice and the most common and ones that riders can go out and practice. And, and I really do encourage them, go out, find that parking lot, set up those those parking lines and, and run some practice on this and listen to some of the, the past episodes about counterweighting. If, if you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about with that and this, this gray zone and clutch control, cause we've done some great shows on, on those other techniques and all of this stuff builds on each other. It's all layered skill sets. All the ingredients are there. We're just repackaging them for very specific situations and, and U-turns are a big one. This is This is one of those things where when riders come to the school for training, they either struggle with or they've come in specifically going, this is a skill I haven't been able to figure out. Help me. Well, another great chunk of information. Thank you very much, Brett. And and of course, if you're listening to this and you have any questions or you you maybe want to ask something about a certain skill set that you haven't heard of, just drop by the website and send us an email or through the contact form. Brett, once again, thanks a lot. 
today was a great show. It was so much fun to talk about this topic, and I'm looking forward to the next show. And that was our rider skill segment for this month. And I was speaking, of course, with Brett Tax. Brett is a professional motorcycle riding instructor, as well as one of the owners at Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Remember, you can drop by our website and listen to all of our shows, including our other show, which is called ARR Raw, which comes out once a month. It's sort of a round table or round campfire talk um, with a bunch of experienced travelers, and we talk about all kinds of things to do with motorcycle travel. All that available at our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And of course, as you probably know at this point, this is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make it work. And if you can do it and you'd like to, I mean, think about what you'd spend on a cup of coffee in the morning and the enjoyment you get from that or any other little small purchase you do and consider putting something towards the show if you like it. For your support, anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention. And we also signed up for Patreon, which is a a monthly support system if you want to put on a, a monthly support. Either way, we'd love to hear from you and now it's time to get out there and ride your bike unless of course it's snow and ice out and then well there's not much you can do maybe go listen to some of the the back episodes of adventure rider radio my name is jim martin this is adventure rider radio see you next week all right hi this is gina marie austin from twowheel2feet.com and you're listening to adventure rider radio (laughs) 